You see a flip-flop? Look at the flip-flop. I mean, you talk about a guy who needs to man up. You know what I'm saying? Is that right? I saw that last week, and I said, I got to put that in the, at the beginning. Sorry, there was no sound, but it kind of adds to the effect. I mean, this guy's got to man up, number one, because he just stole some grandmother's purse, you know. But he's really got to man up, because if you're going to steal a grandmother's purse, you better be able to outrun her. <laughs> and she better not be able to take you down, and she better not be able to throw her flip-flop at you. When it's all said and done, she gets back up and dusts herself off, grabs a purse, heads back. He takes off whimpering in his truck. You know, as President Biden would say, come on, man. <laughs> well, we're going to be finishing up our series on uh, Man Up. Did a quick three-week series for us guys to kind of evaluate where we're at in our lives and how we're uh, leading as, um, as godly men. Next week, we're going to start our new series, The Greatest Week in History. That's going to lead us up into Easter. And on Easter, we're going to do three services. We're going to have one on Saturday, which is the first time we've done this, which is exciting. So a Saturday service at 4 p.m. And then our typical Sunday morning, uh, 9 o'clock and 10.30. So um, great opportunity for you to be inviting people to attend, to serve. Like if you haven't been currently serving or want to kind of test the waters on what it means to serve, like do impact team, for instance, greet people, uh, maybe choose one of those services and just, you know, get your feet wet and check it out, see what you think. Sound good? Nobody thinks it sounds good. That's fine. <laughs> uh, and then next week, like I said, we're going to have our baptism, so that's going to be exciting. Um, we'll do that right at the beginning of the service. So get here early, make sure you got a seat, invite your friends, you know, those who are getting baptized, invite your friends and family. And um, we'll celebrate that together. It'll be, it'll be a good time. We'll go ahead and turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We've been spending some time in the Old Testament. Not that the New Testament doesn't have any real men in it. It does, but we thought, you know, we'd spend some time in the Old Testament. Good to get back there. And we're going to be in Nehemiah. It's page 497, if you're using the Bible there in the seats. Uh, some of you may not be familiar with this book. It's kind of tucked away right in the center of uh, the Old Testament. And so I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson, kind of a backstory here, because we're going to jump right into chapter 4, which means there's how many chapters prior to that? Three. Very good. I just want to see if you guys are awake. So um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a backstory. So here it is. First of all, chronologically, uh, Nehemiah is actually the last book in the Old Testament. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the last book is the Italian prophet Malachi. And um, it's... <laughs> So I just wanted to see if some of you guys would laugh at that. I'd appreciate that, because that's like a really old church joke, um, Malachi. But anyways, so chronologically, Nehemiah is the last book, and then there was 400 years of silence, is how they describe it, where God didn't really interact with Israel and that kind of stuff until the announcement of Jesus Christ being born. So it's kind of a, a neat book that way. Nehemiah led the third return of Jews from captivity in Persia. And you might be thinking, okay, wait, wait, wait a second. Israel was captive, held captive by another nation. What's that all about? Don't understand that. So here's how we got there. You ready for this? Thanks, Don. So (laughs) how we got here is this. We talked about Ruth. Remember our series through Ruth uh, several weeks ago? That was for ladies. So we did this Ruth study. That happened during the time of the judges. The time of the judges was right after Israel got into the land, and they didn't have any 
you know, specific leader. They were supposed to be following God. God was supposed to be their king. They were supposed to be doing what life his way. But as we found out in, in Ruth, especially during the time of the judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of like what we have in our world today. Very familiar, very similar to what we've got. It lasted about three to 400 years. So it was a long period of time where Israel didn't really have a leader. And God would raise up these different guys, they call them judges, who would come in there and they would rescue Israel from one of the nations who was being, God was using to discipline them, which is something he told them he would do back in Deuteronomy. Then after that happened, they said, hey, we, wanna, uh, we want someone to lead us. We want a king. And so they got Saul. And Saul became a king. And he started a period of about a um, little over 100 years or so. Uh, Saul, David, Solomon. We talked about David last week, or the last two weeks actually, uh, his last words. And so then Solomon dies. Solomon dies. The uh, nation divides. Okay, so now there's two nations. There's the northern kingdom, which is, keeps the name Israel. They have 10 tribes. There's the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. They have two tribes. Um, the 10 tribes up north, they never had a good king who did things God's way. The southern kingdom, they had a few who did things God's way. But like God said back in Deuteronomy, that if you move away from doing life my way, if you start doing stuff to damage yourself, hurt yourself, injure yourself, I'm going to use the nations around you to discipline you in order to get your eyes back on me. And so this is happening at this point. Israel lasts 210 years. God uses Assyria to come in and discipline them, takes them off into captivity. Judah the southern kingdom, lasts about 345 years. God allows Babylon to come in, takes them into captivity. Babylon is defeated by Persia in 539. And King Artaxerxes, um, that's a hard word for me to pronounce, so I did a good job. Uh, way to go, Harold. Uh, it's funny how God uses people who have you know, speech issues to teach. Um, so to say Artaxerxes twice in a row is pretty good. So he gives permission for Nehemiah to lead this third um, group of people back to Jerusalem. The first two trips took care of the temple. This one was going to build a wall. Well, who's Nehemiah? Nehemiah is a Jewish guy who was born in captivity. Uh, he became a servant of the king. He was uh, concerned about God, so he, he kept his love and desire for God and, and for what God wanted to do through um, Israel. And he became a cupbearer. Anybody know what a cupbearer is? We don't have those nowadays necessarily. Well, I had my kids test my food, but um, just in case Kim's, you know, upset with me. Um, a cupbearer is somebody who tastes the food and drinks the wine of the king to make sure it's not poisoned. Can you imagine having that job? I mean, in one sense, it's a really good job because the king would trust you. On the other hand, if somebody wanted to poison you, um, I said in the 9 o'clock service, the last, the last two presidents, I'm sure, are probably wanting to have some um, cup beers. But anyways, I probably should. I'm going to get canceled if I keep this up. <laughs> anyways, so Nehemiah receives a report from his brother who's been to Jerusalem, and he hears about Jerusalem is just in shambles. Yeah, the temple is up, but the nations around him are still harassing him and causing him problems. Jerusalem itself is a shambles, and so he risks his life to go to our exerces to ask for permission to go take this next group of people. Now, the reason why this is a risking his life situation is because they had a, a law that if you were sad 
in front of the king, he would kill you. Nobody is to be sad in front of the king. Think about maybe putting that in here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it can only be happy in front of Harold. Um, no, they, so they would, so here he is, he's going to go to him and say, hey, I want to give up my job um, tasting your food, and I, I want to go to, you know, Jerusalem. And so he, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But anyway, so he receives permission, he gathers the materials, and he heads off to build this defensive wall. All right, you got it? Clear as mud? Everybody's on board? All excited? Excited about this this morning? <laughs> yeah, liars. Um, so Nehemiah, Nehemiah is like a journal. He, he writes it like a journal, which is kind of neat. Um, you know, I did this, and then we did this, and then I went over here, and these people were doing this. And so we're going to look through this journal. We're going to take one passage, Nehemiah 4, because in this passage is everything that Nehemiah did for his entire life. It just kind of, it's just all kind of sitting inside this passage. So we want to read through this chapter. Now, it's, it's a long chapter, so bear with me. <clears throat> I'll try to do my job of keeping you awake as we go along. There's some funny things that take place in it. Um, so first of all, <clears throat> it says this, starting in chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1. Now, it came about that when Sanballat heard that they were, uh, they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, even when they were, even when they were building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. <laughs> oh, oh, you get it? Oh, that's funny. So you ever have a friend, you're, you're hanging out with a bunch of friends and everyone's joking and goofing around and then this one friend always goes, yeah, and then he says something and I was like, that makes no sense. Why are you even saying that? That's Tobiah. He, he's one of these guys that says stuff. I don't even know what that means other than the, I guess the wall's not that strong. Anyways, it was funnier in my head. <laughs> so then... Um, so then Nehemiah goes on, Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return the reproach on their heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. You know, make them like we are. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now in Sanballat, Tobiah, now they grab some more people, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashadites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on. Their mocking didn't stop them, or the joke about a fox. And that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem to, to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. A little keying in to some of the things we're going to be talking about this morning. Thus in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. So in spite of what they're doing, the people in Jerusalem are concerned. The strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. 
When the Jews who lived near them, the Jews that were outside the city living closer to these enemies, um, came and told us 10 times, which is a the Jewish figure of speech just means they kept on coming, just over and over and over again, telling them the same thing, telling them this, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space, behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with the swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sisters, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, that's kind of interesting, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were building the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work, and the other holding a sword, uh, weapon. Anybody, like I was thinking about my construction days, you know, back in the day building houses, you know, hammer in one hand and I'd have a sword in the other. It'd be kind of a weird, you know, coordination thing for me. Imagine hitting your finger with your sword. Anyways, <laughs> my, da- my dad told me, <clears throat> my dad told me, he goes, you know, Harold, you hammer like lightning. Oh, thanks, Dad. You know, I want my dad's approval. Yeah, you never hit the same place twice. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while a trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on to work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so they may be a guard uh, for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. <clears throat> each took his weapon even to the water. <clears throat> this project took 52 days. What Nehemiah is saying is, none of us took our clothes off. None of us took a shower. None of us bathed. We were always ready to go. We wanted to set the example. <clears throat> yeah, that would have been a ripe situation. But again, it shows his commitment. So, okay, so what's the deal with the wall? And what is it we can learn from Nehemiah as he builds this wall? Because we can pull some things out of here that we want to apply to our lives, especially for us guys. But ladies, this works for you as well. Well, like Nehemiah, we have a, bit, a mission to build a wall. So now Nehemiah's wall was a physical wall of protection. Jerusalem wasn't as big as it was in Jesus' day. It was a little bit smaller. <clears throat> and so he built, uh, they actually uncovered this portion of this wall uh, in, uh, around it, uh, Jerusalem, which is kind of cool. But as you can see the red arrows pointing in. That's the wall, and it's around the temple. It was about two miles long. It was between 8 and 16 feet thick. So, you know, it's, this isn't like a little white picket fence, right? It is 40 to 50 feet high. So this is a massive structure. It's, it's designed to defend Jerusalem, but really to defend the temple. Because the temple was where God's presence was. That's where people went to worship. 
And so they had to make sure that that building, which had been destroyed already once, that it would stay up, that there would be a place for them to go to be able to worship God. So how does this relate to us as men? Well, I'm not going to get into a big biblical uh, defense of this. I'm just going to state this, and that is that God makes it very clear in the Bible that we as men are responsible for the spiritual atmosphere in our homes. We're responsible for the spiritual health of our families. We're responsible to make sure that our family is protected as God wants them protected. Now, if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, well, you know, Harold, I'm not married. Okay, you're not. You might be at some point in the future. Um, So whether you're married or not, whether you're dating somebody, you're hoping to date somebody, whether you're engaged or not, you got to know what God's expectations are so you do life God's way. So you respond the way God wants you to respond, which is the best way to respond. It's the place where we find protection from God and we don't hurt ourselves and injure other people. And so this is important stuff because if we can't get it right when we're dating, we can't get it right when we're engaged, it doesn't get any easier when we're married. Am I right, guys? You know, we thought it was going to be, oh, yeah, when we get married, then we got married. You know, it doesn't get any easier. So you got to make sure you're doing it right before, taking that lead, being the example, so that when you get into marriage, you're disciplined and ready to go. So we're to build a spiritual wall. Nehemiah had this physical wall, massive thing. We're responsible, responsible to, to build a spiritual wall around our family. Again, in the Old Testament, the temple had God's presence. It's where people went to worship God. It was kind of a come and see type of religion. Come learn about who God is in this, in this temple. Today, God's Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit, when we place our faith in Christ, God forgives us of our sins. He restores our relationship with us and places His Holy Spirit in us. We become the temple. In fact, Paul's talking about this. Specifically, he's talking about this in relationship to uh, sexual purity, in relationship and that kind of stuff. But he says this, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. But how do you not know that your body, so here's the point, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you are bought with a price. And what's the price? Christ's death on the cross. Christ went to the cross so our sins could be forgiven. And so that we, like Dave was saying, so when we have, our, when we have those issues in our lives and God reveals to us, okay, this is a sin, a sin area in our lives, as Christians, we can give that up. We can have the power to give that up because of Christ and his Holy Spirit in us. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Glorify just basically means represent God. Show who God is through how you live. So when people see how you live, they have an accurate picture of who God is. And so we're supposed to glorify God in our bodies. Why? Because our bodies are the temple. That's why we don't call this a temple. We don't even call this God's house. Because this isn't God's house. This is a building. This is a building where we're supposed to gather as followers of Christ because the New Testament tells us to gather together and encourage each other and help each other and do all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I was growing up when I was a kid, and don't run in God's house. And I remember the first time I realized this isn't God's house. And I'm like, but this isn't God's house. You know, <laughs> ended up on the other side of God's house, you know. My mom's like, you can go, go meet God is what you're going to do. <laughs> so, but no, and this is, you guys, listen, this is, this is crucial for us to grab hold of. 
our bodies, our, our lives, how we do life, the choices that we make, it's all in worship of God. From the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, we are worshiping God through our obedience, through how we live our lives, the choices that we make, the things that we do. Again, Nehemiah is just building a wall around a temple. We've got a, a much larger project that we're supposed to build a protection, spiritual protection around ourselves and around our wives and around our children. And if we're not married yet, if we're dating, then the person that we're dating, if we're engaged, the person we're engaged to, we got a responsibility to do it God's way, to do it right, to make the hard choices. Well, like Nehemiah, we're going to find out that we're going to have enemies. He had enemies from, um, from outside. You know, he had Sam Ballot and Mr. Funny Man, Tobiah. There's jokes about foxes. He had nations were surrounding them, were mocking them. They were threatening to do violence. If you read further on, there was an assassination attempt on Nehemiah. These people did not want Israel having any kind of say or power in the Persian kingdom. They wanted to keep Israel down. But he also had the people inside, the Jewish people. You have a group of people that are sitting around wringing their hands. Oh, the job is so big. There's just so much going on. You got other people going, you know, the ones that are coming into Jerusalem from outside, they're, they're saying they're going to attack you. And he goes, yeah, I've heard that. You have known they're going to attack you. Yeah, I've heard that. But they're going to attack you. Yeah, I heard that. They kept coming to him. This is dangerous for you. you need to, maybe you should consider stopping doing this. If I was Nehemiah, I'd be, well, maybe you should pick up a stone and, and a, a, you know, some sort of tool and help us accomplish this. You're all whining and complaining yeah, it's not going to get done if we have a bunch of whiners and complainers. Anybody see Gulliver's Travels when you were a kid? Little cartoon Gulliver's Travels. You remember Glum? Poor old Glum. We're doomed. We'll never make it. That's what, he's, that's what he has to deal with. A bunch of people go, oh, we're doomed. This isn't going to work. So he had enemies. Well, we have enemies. We have enemies from outside. We have the media, social media, politicians. They're actively looking to destroy the design that God has in general, but specifically for the family. We, we can't look to them for, for help. They're censoring books and taking people off Twitter and YouTube. And I've heard a couple more churches that were taken off of YouTube because they had hate speech. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's crazy. People can't say anything today. Of any kind. We were talking before the service about um, Dr. Seuss. You know, and the, now Dr. Seuss, the people who publish it, they're making the decision to do this because they see some things in it. But still, again, it's just, you know, we're losing our way. But our own families, other Christians could be, quote unquote, our enemies. Kim and I have faced this in our lives that we had a way that we believe God wanted us to raise our kids. And, um, you know, we've had people telling us that that's kind of a weird way to raise your kids, or why are you doing that, or why won't you let them do that, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And you know, I'll, so I'll just give you for one. Like, if sports got in the way of church, church came first. You know? And so then people would be like, well, what about your kids going to college? They need to have like sports and that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, God will make that work out. Because the number one important thing for them is to be a part of a church family and being involved with the church family. That was our decision that we made. 
But people gave us a difficult time for it. And I didn't go around telling other parents, hey, you're doing wrong. That was a decision they had to make. But we had people in our lives telling us the way we raise our kids, how Kim and I respond to each other. We've had people say, you know, more to kid, Kim than for me, but, you know, how could you be married to that guy? Yeah, TV, music, school, all this stuff is conditioning us and trying to get us to think differently than what God wants us. We've got friends and family and, and even some Christians who may be saying, hey, listen, I'm not really sure that's the best way to go about that. And I don't think you doing that should be how you should do it. We don't see this in Nehemiah, which is pretty cool, but there's a third enemy that we have. And the third enemy is ourselves, as men. It's just a weird thing that God tells men constantly, step up, lead, be the example. Serve your church family. Take care of your wife. Take care of your kids. And inevitably, we're having to challenge men all the time to do that. It's just weird. Our own apathy, our own unwillingness to do what God's called us to do as men, our pride, our arrogance, I, I don't know, call it what, you're, what you want to call it, but the fact of the matter is we've got too many men who know what God wants them to do, and they're still not willing to do it. They've got their reasons, but any excuse is a good excuse when you're using it. It's not an excuse for God. God wants us in there. God wants us protecting our family, doing what's necessary, finding out what's necessary if we don't know what's necessary. Why does it seem that every time Nehemiah makes a decision, it seems to be the right decision. If you've read through the book, you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't seem like he ever makes a bad decision. He's kind of got the Midas touch. You know, everything he does turns out right. Why is that? Well, as you read through Nehemiah, you find out there's really three main things that he did. He kind of had a plan. And this wasn't just here in chapter 4. This was what his whole life evidently was like because he didn't have to think about it. It just flowed out of who he was because he'd been doing this all of his life. And in the first part of the plan is that he, he kept God as his number one priority. He did life God's way. He was going to do life God's, no ma- God's way no matter what. He was going to give up one of the best jobs in the kingdom because he felt God wanted him to go and help Jerusalem out, his people out, continue God's plan for Israel moving forward. If, if Nehemiah had stayed, no one would have given a second thought to that. In fact, they probably would have said, that's probably the best move you could, could make. But he was a follower of God. He loved God. He loved his people. He loved God's plan. And he gave it all up. He made the choice to do life God's way. The second thing he did is that he prayed. He prayed about everything. Again, if you read through Nehemiah, he's praying all the time. Chapter 1, he gets the report. It's a really bad report. He's really sad about the report. And so he's he's feeling like, God, I I just need to come before you. He fasts and he prays about the whole thing. And in that, God was obviously moving in his heart to have him do something that was going to risk his life by going before the king. And so then he goes before the king. Remember, the king who, if you were sad in his presence, would kill you. He walks in. The king says, Nehemiah, I notice you are downcast. Now, for those who don't know, downcast means sad. And so he could have been killed right there, but he, it says that he prayed to God and then made his request. So he wasn't just sad. Now he's going to say, hey, I'm going to quit my job. 
It's a great paying job I've got. And I, I want to go to Jerusalem and help them build this wall. And by the way, I'd like you to pay for it. I'd like you to give me the supplies for it. Then in, uh, as he's going around inspecting the wall, it says God was formulating a plan in his head. So God was giving him the idea, okay, here's how this is going to, big project, here's how this is going to play out. Nehemiah 4, we just read it. He prays and he asks God, you know, defeat our enemies. Keep them from accomplishing what they want to do. Keep them from demoralizing us. He kept on saying that uh, the God or that God was going to frustrate their plans, or that people were upset because God had frustrated their plans. See, praying lets God do what only God can do. When we pray about something, we're saying, okay, God, I can't do this part of it. You need to do this part of it. Only God changes hearts. Only God can move in people's lives and hearts. And so Nehemiah did it. He prayed, and God was the one who moved. God was the one who frustrated people's plans. And so because God was number one, because he prayed about everything, God gave him victory because then he did what the third thing is, and that he took action. He put into play what he was supposed to do. We all have a responsibility in this, guys, as we're building the spiritual wall of protection around our family. We've got things that we need to do. He knew where the weak points were. So he prayed, right? And then what did he do? He stationed people where the weak points were. He was looking at the job and the situation said, okay, this is where we're weak. This is where the enemy could come in. This is where they can weasel their way through the wall and they could cause us great harm. So I'm going to put guys there. And so he gets a plan. Everybody's working and they're all carrying weapons. And if somebody needed help in one area, they blew the horn and they all went to that area. He had a plan. He did what he could do. He followed through on his responsibility. So much more, so much more that, that he didn't even take a bath for 52 days. <laughs> no, he was committed. Just making a, a point here, guys. Um, take your baths regularly, okay? <laughs> I'm not saying this is part, this wasn't point four, okay? Hey, pastor said I don't have to take a shower today. Don't hear that. So as a as the band comes and as we kind of um, evaluate this and, and, and look at our lives, and around here we do what we call takeaways, um, what are the things that we should take away from what we're talking about? So I just want to challenge you guys um, with a couple things. First of all, take time this week and evaluate, is God your number one priority? I mean, really think about it. Is God number one in my life? Or are other things becoming more important? Is work becoming more important? Is my um, leisure activities, my hobbies, are they becoming more important? Is my phone becoming more important? I'll just give you a little FYI, I struggled this week because this was very convicting to me. And I hate those kind of messages. I'd, <laughs> I'd rather tell you guys what you should do. No, I, as I'm praying about this, and thinking, okay, God, what, you know, where's this, what, what does this mean for me in my life? And So I had a conversation with Kim last night, and... Um, so here's one of the simple things that I've decided to do. We got real, we've gotten sloppy. Kim and, my, and I have gotten sloppy, and I've gotten sloppy as a spiritual leader. So I took my phone in front of her, and I deleted Facebook, MeWe, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Bubble Burst, Words with Friends. Yeah, those are the only 
Yeah, you, I was sweating by the time I got done. That was a lot of work. No, I, because here's what happens. I come home after a long day and I'm tired. And so I sit in my recliner and I pop up my phone and I start playing on my phone. And then next you know it's nine o'clock, time for bed. There's something wrong with that. So I told Kim, I said, I'm, I'm deleting all the fun stuff. My phone is my work phone now. That's just one of the changes that we've decided to make. We've made some other things, other changes that we're going to do. But you need to evaluate what's your commitment to what God wants to do. Hey, if you're not married yet, are you committed to sexual purity? It's what God wants for you. It's what's best for you. It's what's the most healthy for you. Are you willing to do what God wants you to do? Secondly, how's your prayer life? Are you committed to pray with and for your wife and for your kids, with your kids? Are you committed to let God do what only God can do in the life of your family? There's only, there's only so much you can do. God's got to do his work in people's hearts. Your kids have to make personal choices too, but you've got to be bathing that in prayer and praying for them. I remember as a kid, I would come down early on certain days and, and sit in the dining room listening into the kitchen just to wait to hear my parents pray for me by name. That was awesome. My parents never said, Harold, I love you. They always said, we love you guys too, but they prayed for me by my name. All five of us. Are we doing that? Do our kids know that we do that? Are they aware of that? And the last one, are you taking action? Are you evaluating your life and say, okay, where are the weak points? Where can the enemy get in? Where can social media get in? Where can my own apathy be causing problems? What are the weak points? God, help me to understand what the weak points are. Give me the strength to do what's necessary. Nehemiah was just building a wall. We're responsible to protect our families, our lives and our families' lives. And we're going to stand before God one of these days for that. Let's be men who are godly men and man up and be the ones responsible to do life God's way no matter what anybody else says and make sure that our family is protected. Dave.